You can get to Luke chapter 13 this morning. We'll be in verses 22 through 35. I got a little nervous when Wayne started reading, whether he's going to have to preach an old text. You know, if we were going to, if we were going to lay out sort of a chart of, of countries and the history of the world and, and sort of put on this side of the chart those that value most individual liberty and freedom, you'd probably put the United States furthest to the right. And then if we were going to take the 50 states in our country, and we were going to put those on that same graph, I'm pretty sure South Dakota would be about 49th or 50th on that chart of those, those states that value individual liberty, the, the, the basis of our own individual rights. And in many ways, that's, that's a good thing. That's a thing to be uh, rejoicing in. That's one of the things that makes South Dakota one of the best places to live. Uh, but I do believe there's a, the, there's a danger for us, those who value liberty and freedom. There's a danger to us that, that we might say to, to the Lord even, you know what, your authority only goes this far. You know, you may have heard somebody say, your rights end where my nose begins. We, we may be in danger of telling the Lord, you have no right here because I affirm my own individual rights and liberties. Again, it's a good thing when it plays out in our country. It's a bad thing when we then translate that to the way we think about the Lord. Remember, Luke is writing to us. So, so that we might have certainty concerning the things that, that Theophilus, Theophilus had learned, or, or we might say those things that are true concerning Christ. So, so as we think about the purpose of Luke and we come to our text this morning, we, we want to be asking the question, what does our text teach us about Christ? And so when we look at the text, we see then that we don't have the right to, to follow the Lord on our own terms. We don't get to decide what that means and what that looks like. So we can have certainty concerning Christ. And one of the ways we can have certainty concerning Him is, is He lays out for us what it is to know and to love and to follow Him. So that first point this morning, we don't get to follow Jesus on our own terms. That's in verses 22 through 30. We'll look at the next paragraph in just a minute. So Jesus is continuing his public ministry as, as you know, Luke structures his gospel more geographically. He's, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, he knows what awaits him there is death. He understands that. He's predicted his death already. This, this trek to Jerusalem began in chapter 9, verse 51, and it's become increasingly clear to us as the readers that the opposition to Jesus is growing, and we've seen in the text that Jesus will eventually die in Jerusalem. And so along the way and during his teaching ministry, a, a man we, we don't know much about, he asked Jesus a question about the number of people who will be saved. Now, we don't know much, again, about this guy, but it does seem that he's at least gaining some kind of understanding of what Jesus has been teaching. You know, we just walked through the text where, where Jesus saying, the kingdom is like a mustard seed. You know, so he's, he's sort of saying, he, he might be asking something like, is it going to stay, like, small? Is it going to stay a mustard seed? 
Remember the expectation in Israel was a, a, a cataclysmic coming of the Messiah, an immediate universal reign, and when that didn't happen, Israelites were confused. They were rejecting Christ. And, and so he's asking, does that mean, does, does the arrival of your kingdom mean that it's going to remain small? Are there going to be only a few that are saved? You can see that question proposed there in verse 23. Lord, will the number of those saved be few? Now, if you're visiting with us this morning or you haven't been around as we've been walking through verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, you might be wondering, well, saved from what? The guy asks, will the number of those saved be few? Well, what is, what is he asking He's followed Jesus. If he's, if he's been tracking with Jesus' teaching, this guy might answer it this way. Well, well, it's saved from perishing. Because Jesus said, unless you likewise repent, or, or unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or if that's a little fuzzy, maybe we go back a little bit further in Luke where Jesus warned the crowd, do not fear those who can destroy the body. But fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So the sort of preaching, the sort of deliverance, the salvation that we're talking about in the gospel of Luke is being saved or delivered from the eternal consequences of our rebellion against God, of our sin. Romans 5.9 says it this way, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the salvation. That's the deliverance. Saved from experiencing the wrath of God. The, the, the opposite of perishing is what in John 3.16? It's eternal life. So this guy is recognizing that salvation is given to those who repent of their sins and they, and they believe in Christ that he's, as he's come to be the Savior. And as he begins to recognize this, this truth, he, he's at the same time can see really clearly the mounting rejection and opposition to Jesus. And he's wondering, does that just mean this is the way it goes on forever? Only a handful will be saved. So we get Jesus' answer beginning there in verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. So as Jesus often does, he sort of takes the question and he goes the direction that he wants to go to teach and to warn and to implore the crowd. He views this question as an opportunity to teach and to preach and to warn people. He's not really interested, as we'll see in, this, in the number, in this hypothetical question. He, he's a lot more interested and saying, you know what, if you're, if you're here and you're hearing me, make sure you are of that number. You know, I think he goes right to the heart of the matter and not just sort of hanging out in the periphery of the question. And I do think there's a helpful reminder for us here that we don't just do theology for theology's sake. The study of Scripture and the study of doctrine are, are means to an end. And the end is to know God and to love God and to keep His commandments. You know, like I said, Jesus could have 
sort of said, oh, that's a great question. Let's sort of explore different hypotheses here, and let's try to, uh, you know, tease out. He, he's less interested in that and more interested. Do you know me? Do you know me? And, and will the, the truth of what I'm going to say help you to love and obey me? He immediately moves the question from theoretical to matters of life and death. Are you counted among those who will be saved? So he says, strive to enter through this narrow door. And so we're, we're reminded then, as we see as this text develops, there's someone on the other side of the door that, that has to open and he can shut the door. And so the fact that there's, there's a door and there's, there's someone, Christ, on the other side of the door who opens and closes it according to his design and his timing, it teaches us, that, and the fact that this door is narrow, it teaches us that we don't enter the door on our own terms. You know, we don't, again, we don't get to decide for ourselves what it is to follow Christ. We don't get to decide for ourselves who Christ is. I remember a well-known pastor on CNN, and I, I don't doubt his, his motive in this, but he, he, was, he was saying on national TV, just try Jesus for 90 days. Now, I know that he's probably thinking in his mind, if anybody tries Jesus, they will not find themselves disappointed. They will find themselves satisfied in Christ, and nobody will walk away from Jesus in 90 days. But, but I think it's, it is demeaning when we, when we present the Lord the way we would pitch a new vacuum or a new streaming service. Just give it a free trial, 90 days. If you don't like it, don't, you cancel your subscription anytime. The answer that Jesus gives in this, this text undermines that sort of talk. It undermines sort of what, what Bonhoeffer called that cheap grace. That Jesus can be kind of conformed to what I want him to be. I'll sort of add him to the parts of my life that I like. I'll, I'll sort of not worry about the other parts of his teaching that I don't like. It, it undermines that. It undermines sort of what's called easy believism. You know, hey, just let me trick you into praying this prayer. Let me trick you into raising your hand during an invitation. Then you can have a firm, solid confidence that you know the Lord and you are on your way to heaven. Now, now, sometimes the Lord uses stuff like that. Some of you may have been saved. But somebody led you through a sinner's prayer. Some of you may have been saved during an invitation. I'm not suggesting that nobody is saved that Way, but, but when salvation is genuinely worked in a person, it leads to a commitment to a following of Christ, a, a striving to enter through this narrow door. And that word strive, it's jarring for us, right? Because it's, it, it, it's a command, it's something we, we do. We might wonder if Jesus is teaching some kind of salvation by our own efforts, salvation by our own works. Is the door baptism? Is the door church membership? Is the door religious observance? Is that sort of how I have to strive to get through this door? No, what Jesus is emphasizing is the hard calling of following Christ. The hard call of discipleship. You know, we see in the preaching of John the Baptist, and we see in the preaching of Jesus throughout the Gospel of Luke that the initial commitment saving faith results in a complete commitment to Christ. A willingness to follow Christ. Not Obviously not perfectly, we're not going there. We wrestle with the desires of the flesh, we wrestle with sin, you know, we're, we're, we're 
sinning and confessing and repenting. And, but still, we have a new Lord because we've repented. We've turned from sin and we've trusted in Christ. So it might be helpful here just to, as we sort of think through categories to, to make a, a distinction between our, our justification and what we call our sanctification. Now, if those, are, if those are just big words to you, that's okay. Let's, let's think about this. Justification is to be declared righteous by God. It's a legal term. You are credited, not only, not only declared not guilty, but you are credited when you turn to Christ and you trust his work, not your own, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. You are not, not just declared not guilty. You are credited with the righteousness of Christ. And that word sanctification, it means to, to be set apart, right? And, and to be set apart is holy to the Lord. And that, that plays itself out over time as the Lord changes you to the image of Christ. So sanctification is something that happens right away, but then you are conformed to that. You are made more and more sanctified over the course of your life. I'm not the first one to, to say this, but sanctification and justification are, are what we call distinct, but they're inseparable. They're, they're distinct, they're different works of the Lord, but they will not and cannot be separated. Well, you, you see, we have to affirm that they're two different works, or if we sort of meld those together, we get kind of confused. We might say something like, well, you're, you're, you're justified by your works, you're justified by becoming like Jesus. Well, that's not true. Or, or if we sort of mix those two things together, we, we might say something equally wrong and saying, well, it, it doesn't matter if you, if you try to become like Christ. Who cares? You're forgiven. Well, that's wrong as well. So these are, these are distinct works of the Lord, but they are inseparable. God does not do one without doing the other. Those who are justified are sanctified. Those who are justified are sanctified. When you are united with Christ, you're immediately forgiven of all your sins, credited with the righteousness of Christ. You are immediately set apart as holy to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit begins the process in you of making you like Christ. You put off the old man, it's done. You put on the new man, that's done. And the Spirit begins renewing the mind. If you want to look at Ephesians chapter 4 this, this afternoon, that might be a helpful place to think through those that, that process. And this process isn't completed before we st- until we stand in the presence of God, freed from these bodies and, and free from any kind of influence or pull of the flesh. So why go there? Why spend that much time? Why use big theological terms? Because I hope it, it helps us make sense of the call of Christ. It helps us not to be confused and to sort of mix these things, that I'm saved by my works, or I don't have to even care what Jesus says after I, after I pray a prayer. No, it's not, it's not either one of those things. It's just an affirmation that saving faith results in striving after God and preferring Him and loving Him and being convicted when we fail Him. So, so the imagery is that in order to press through this door, you have to lay aside these, your old life. You have, to, you have to lay aside those things that can't fit through the door. The, the bags have to go. 
We saw the parable of the rich fool not too long ago. You can't bring all your riches in with you. If, if you say, Lord, I'll follow you if, as long as you don't ever ask me to, to give anything away. Or I want, to bring, I want to bring my popularity with me. I want to bring the crowd with me. Lord, I'll follow you as long as it doesn't cost me. Don't, don't, don't let it cost me friends or influence. I want to bring the world in with me. I want to cling to the course of this world and cling to Christ at the same time. Jesus said, if you cling to this life, you'll lose it. If you look, oh, for my sake, you'll find eternal life. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I think there's sort of a third thing the narrow door teaches us, and it's, it's that the, the gospel is exclusive. It's, it's narrow. Jesus doesn't say, hey, pick one of these doors. Or, or I'm at the top of the mountain and, you know, all these roads, they'll, they'll all get you there just as long as you're sincere. We're reminded that there's one name under heaven by which we must be saved, the man Christ Jesus. This is an exclusive message that Christ preaches. He has made a way. He is the only way. And so there's two really serious eternal errors that some can make that, that Jesus then sort of teases out in the rest of this passage. The first one is waiting and not acting. And at the end of verse 24, I tell you, let me read the whole verse. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. You know, wanting, wanting the benefits of the work of Christ does not necessarily bring the salvation that's available in Christ. Sort of wanting to enter that door, oh, it would be nice. It would be nice if I could have what's on the other side of that door. Wanting the benefits of Christ without acting on the call of Christ does not bring salvation in Christ. There are many who seek the door, but they find it too narrow. The broad way, to, to use the language from Matthew, the broad way is a little bit easier. This narrow door, it's too demanding. It's too difficult. It's too hard. Don't wait. Don't, don't, don't just want the benefits that Christ offers you in His work on the cross. Go after Him. Jesus is worth it all. There, there, there's, I, I say this from time to time, but there's nothing. There's no thing in this world. There's no sin worth clinging on to. Jesus said he came to bring division. There's no sense of popularity or, or relationship that's worth clinging on to if it's in the way of you walking through the narrow door of turning to Christ and submitting to him as Lord. Another error is waiting and not responding. And that's verses 25 through 28. That's really what I think Jesus is, is building to here. He's been making this point throughout, throughout this passage. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom, but you yourselves cast out. So, so the first error, I think I said it wrong, it's wanting and not acting. It's wanting the benefit, so like cross that out. Um, all of you who are confused, put this back. Wanting and not acting on the call of Christ. Wanting the benefits. Um, and then the second one is waiting and not responding. Waiting and not responding. Jesus says there's a, there's a time when the door is shut and access is closed. He's building to this, again, not only in our paragraph, but in this chapter, he's been getting at, respond now while, while you can. He's been warning, specifically Israel, he's been warning Israel about the danger of failing to receive him. The danger of not acting. The danger of waiting. The base, is the, or what do we say, the axe is at the base of the tree. If the tree doesn't bear fruit, it's going to be cut down. He's been urging them to repent while the opportunity remains, while the opportunity is in front of them. And we've seen similarly, even with the the, the parable of the fig tree, that this this call, it's a a warning initially given to Israel, but there's certainly application for us as individuals. We've seen that death comes at an unexpected hour. We've seen that when Christ returns, he'll come like a thief in the night at an unexpected time. He said, respond now while the opportunity remains because the the door doesn't always remain open. Notice in verse 26, the rationale for why Jesus, why they think Jesus should reopen this door. Why do they think they should have access to the kingdom? What do they, what do they say? You were present with us, Jesus. We, we were there when you were doing your ministry. We, had, we, we shared meals with you, Jesus. Of course we should be welcome in your kingdom. Of course we should be able to dine with you and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. The problem is that that proximity and and familiarity with Jesus is not what's demanded for entrance into the kingdom. You know, Jesus' audience, they, they were with Jesus, they saw Jesus, they interacted with Jesus, but physical closeness to Jesus did not equal reception of Christ from the heart, which Jesus was demanding of them. They may have been close to him, but they did not belong to him. Or Jesus says it a different way, not, not just physical proximity, but he says they, these religious leaders, anyways, they honor me with words, but their hearts are far away. They have not turned from their sin, and they have not turned from their trust in themselves. They have not let go of their own self-righteousness to turn to Christ. They're, they're still trying to impress God through, through adding rules and rules and rules and looking down on others and condemning others and making themselves feel better. And maybe, maybe God is impressed with me. Maybe God is pleased with me because I'm better than, than this guy. And as a result, they're distant from God. They're distant from Him. They're not striving to enter through the narrow door. And you can see this, this distance, this, this separation in the way that Jesus addresses them at the end of verse 27. Depart from me, all you Workers of evil, all you workers of 
evil. Those on the outside have, have chosen the, the wrong way. They've chosen the wrong door. They've gone a different path. And you can imagine yourself being lost in, in, in some cave, you know, and it's dark in there. And, and there's sort of this narrow passage. You're going to have to let go of your backpack. You're going to have to leave all your supplies behind. But this narrow passage is actually the way. This is, this is the way that will take you to safety. But then over here, you've got this big open cavern. And man, I don't even have to bend down. I don't have to crawl. I don't have to get muddy. I, I'm just going to go the easy way. But, but the easy way doesn't lead to the, to the exit. It doesn't lead to life. It doesn't lead to, or lead to rescue. But it's easier. Well, this, this, these people outside the door, they've chosen the easy path. And now the door has been closed. The exit has been blocked. And time, Jesus says, has run out. Time has run out. So are those who are, who are saved, will, will that number be few? Well, Jesus' initial answer is, don't worry about how many. Make sure you are one of them. By responding to Christ, by following Jesus. In verse 29 through 32, he, he sort of gets at this number question. It's not so much that the number will be few as much as it is there will be a surprising group of people that gather there. In verse 28, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there are there. In verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are, some are last who will be first, and some are first, who will be last. You see, this crowd before Jesus and Israel as a whole, they had many different advantages in terms of seeing and responding to Jesus. In some sense, they were first. They, they, they had the promises. They had the Word. Paul sort of lays this out in, in the book of Romans. Jesus is in their midst, he's healing, he's teaching, he's calling them to repentance. They had John the Baptist that pointed to Jesus. They had all of these advantages. And not only that, but they had Abraham, and they had Isaac, and they had Jacob as their forefathers, and all the prophets that were pointing forward to the arrival of this Savior. And yet many who, who had the advantage will be left out of the kingdom. And instead, God is... God will gather for Himself a people from every point on the compass, from north and south, east and west. Those are the ones who will be gathered there at the banquets. And that this realization that, that the crowd there, that don't seek the narrow door, this, this realization that they're left out of the kingdom that they're not automatically recipients of divine grace based on their, their parentage or their, their lineage or their heritage. This is an agonizing reality. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And instead, there's this great reversal that happens. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Believe it or not, that's not about getting in line at potluck. There's this great reversal. The kingdom isn't made up of those who had a lineage yet refused Jesus. Nor is it only made up of, of Gentiles, as we'll see. 
Instead, it's made up of all those who see Christ for who He is and they turn from their sin and they trust in in His work. They let go of religious observance. They let go of uh, heritage. They let go of tradition. They let go of self-righteousness and they're trusting in Christ alone. This message that, that, that Jesus is giving that, man, there's going to be some surprising people at this banquet. It becomes really much clearer to us as the Gospel of Luke develops. It becomes really clear after the resurrection of Christ at the end of uh, the Gospel of Luke into the, the book of Acts. Jesus commands at the end of Luke, we'll be there at some point. It says, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, they're going to preach in Jerusalem. They're going to go to Judea and Samaria, and then they're going to go to the ends of the earth. They're going to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus then promises the Holy Spirit will come upon the disciples. They will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Acts 10, following Peter's realization based on God's revelation, the Gentiles aren't outside the kingdom, Peter says this, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Everyone, later on in the text, everyone who believes in Christ receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So those who were close to the kingdom, those who who had the advantage, they had Jesus in their midst. Many of them will miss the kingdom, have missed the kingdom. But those who are far off, Paul says, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The first will be last, and the last will be first. So again, whatever whatever that number is, wherever they're from, Jesus is warning them, you you make sure you're of that number Strive to enter through the narrow door. Turn to faith in Christ. Submit to Him as Lord. Follow Him. Deny yourself. See, again, we we don't get to decide for ourselves the width of the door. We are called to follow Him. We don't get to relegate Christ to our co-pilot or flight attendant. We don't get to pick and choose what we think is true about Christ. You know, I was, when I was living in Springfield, one of the main leaders of this Jesus seminar was, was a professor at Missouri State. And the Jesus seminar would sort of like, they would take a statement of Jesus and they would vote whether they think he actually said it or not. And if a lot of people voted for it, then yeah, he probably said it. If a lot of people didn't vote for it, then he probably didn't say it. And, and, and guess what happened? <laughs> All the hard things Jesus said, he didn't actually say. <laughs> Somebody said, you know, the, the Bible's inspired in spots, and I'm inspired to spot the spots. Jesus said certain things, and I get to be the one to sort of decide which ones he actually said and what he didn't. Well, we don't, we don't have that right. That's one reason we're sort of walking verse by verse through the Bible, so that God can speak through us, and we don't pick and choose. This is also th- this idea of the, the narrow door, uh, you know, we'll just say this quickly, and we'll move on to our our last point here. This is this is why we work hard to avoid any kind of manipulation with with, with children, or or in our public services, or even in your personal evangelism. The goal isn't just to trick someone into saying saying something you want them to say. 
We don't want to trick people. We don't want to deceive people. We just want to preach Christ. We want to hold out Christ as one who is worthy. He's worth it. That's why you go through the narrow door. He's worth it. We want to hold him out and, and seek to just explain him and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. Preach the gospel and leave the results up to the Lord. You know, you, you've done well if you share Christ. The, the person's response is, is not your responsibility. So you don't have to sort of try to manipulate that. You can appeal to them. You can appeal from the heart. You need to be saved. You need to trust in Christ. But we don't have to try to trick people. So during this, this instruction, a group of Pharisees come with a, a, a warning of sorts for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' response, we see our second point this morning. Point number two, nothing can dis- deter Jesus from fulfilling his task. Look at the warning there in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So as Jesus is teaching, some Pharisees come, and this is a pretty ominous warning. You need to leave because Herod wants to kill you. That's a big deal. Herod Antipas is the one who killed John the Baptist or had him killed. This is a powerful guy. John had rebuked Herod for his illicit affair and marriage. And eventually Herod, being deceived and really manipulated by his wife, puts John the Baptist to death. You know, we should not be surprised that Herod would want to kill Jesus, although, um, you know, at the end, Herod's pretty delighted to see Jesus before he's put to death. But we shouldn't be surprised that, that if this is a true report, that the Pharisees are being honest, we shouldn't be surprised. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas's father, there's lots of Herods in the Bible, you sort of got to be careful there, but Herod's father tried to kill Jesus when he was a, a baby. Joseph and Mary had to flee to Egypt. So we shouldn't be surprised that a powerful political ruler wants to silence Jesus. What what is somewhat surprising in the text is that the Pharisees warn Jesus. You know, they they too, we've seen opposition rising, they too want to be rid of Jesus. It seems out of place for them to be warning Christ. Now, I, I... I don't like to guess, so I'm just going to lay out a few options. It's possible that, that these are some of the good guys among the Pharisees. There's, there's a handful of them. Nicodemus is sympathetic towards Jesus. He's a Pharisee. You know, we're going to see Jesus invite, accepts another invitation here in a moment to a Pharisee's home. Maybe, maybe they either are sympathetic to Christ or they haven't made up their name about Jesus, but they don't want him dead. That's certainly possible. It's also probably more likely that they want Jesus just to be quiet, and maybe if we tell them that Herod's going to try to kill him, then Jesus will get out of town, he'll quit messing with our people, and we won't have to deal with him anymore. Maybe he'll go underground, and that'll be the end of it. Others have suggested that maybe this is some sort of a trap. Maybe they want to entrap Jesus in saying something, something that they can take back to Herod and say, oh, guess what Jesus said about you. And if that's the case... Jesus gives them something to take back, right? Jesus gives them a message that would certainly provoke Herod to anger. We see that in verses 32 and 33. 
And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. In the third day, I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus calls Herod a fox, and that is not a, not a compliment. Remember when that premarital counseling book came out, Catching Foxes, and everybody around me was using it. I'm like, I'm not going to use that because I thought he was calling women foxes, and men are supposed to catch their wife and like convince this woman to marry you. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to use that book. I don't know why everybody's using that book. If he's, if he's going to use that as a title, there's no way. And, and, and then I realized, like I had, saw it on my friend's desk one time, and I picked it up, and I started to read the introduction, and I realized he's borrowing a line from the Song of Solomon about keeping foxes out of the vineyard because when the, when the fox gets in, he destroys the vineyard. And the whole idea behind the book is sort of catching these foxes before you get married so that something doesn't sneak in and ruin your marriage. It's a great book. You should, you should read it. But the negative way that Solomon uses that fox, this fox, he's a destroyer, he's cunning, he's deceptive, he'll, he'll sneak in and he'll, he'll destroy. That's what Herod is. He, he's, a, he's a fox, he's a pest. He's a small pest that, that can do some harm, but he, he, he's not big enough that he could actually harm what God is up to. He's not big enough that he can do anything to Jesus apart from God's sovereign will and his good plan. So Jesus confidently asserts, he's, I'm not, he's, not going, he's not going anywhere. He will continue his mission, and he will fulfill, fulfill his task. The irony is that Jesus says he's safe from Herod because Jesus knows that he's going to Jerusalem, and that's where I'll die. It's not up to Herod. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Herod can't change the plan of God. He can't change the will of God. Jesus doesn't have to flee to save his life because the whole reason Jesus is heading to Jerusalem in the first place is to lay down his life. What a Savior. What a Savior. He won't flee in order to avoid death. He won't flee in order to protect himself. In fact, he's marching to his own death so that he might be the final and only payment for our sins. Now, This is actually Jesus' fourth prediction of his own death. He knows, in the Gospel of Luke, he knows what's awaiting him. And the point, the, the point for us this morning is clear. No wicked ruler, no governing authority whatsoever can hinder, hinder Jesus from fulfilling his task. No authority, no wicked, powerful man or woman can hinder, hinder Jesus from fulfilling his mission. Now, it's good news for us this morning that Jesus didn't cower in fear in the face of, of, of a powerful ruler. He's not fearful. He doesn't begin to waver concerning his mission. He doesn't begin to waver in, in his trust in God's counsel and in God's will. We too can take courage in the face of uncertainty. That we can, we can put our hope in God's sovereignty and His ability to work out history and, and salvation history and redemption exactly the way He planned. 
We don't have to be fearful. Don't fear him who can only kill the body. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of these great lines. I wish I had a cool accent like he does, did. He says, the greatest fool in the world tonight is the man who is hopeful when he looks at the statesman. Who's hopeful, that's, that's the politician. We don't have to bank our hopes and we don't have to bank our fears on what man can do and what's on the 24-hour streaming news. The, the nations rage and the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Herod is raging and Jesus is laughing him off. This idea that then Jesus says, I'm going to finish my task. I'm going to heal today and tomorrow, and in three days I'll be in Jerusalem. Those are, I think, just sequential. It's not necessarily, he's three days away from being there. But this idea that he will die in Jerusalem then turns Jesus' attention to Israel again, to Jerusalem. So, so if you're making like sub-notes, you might say, you know, not only, not, not wicked rulers, they can't control the plan and will of God. They can't derail salvation. And, and also in verses 34 and 35, unbelieving Israel cannot derail God's good plan for salvation. Look at Jesus' lament there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as, as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amazingly, Jesus doesn't lament his own life. I might be tempted to do that. If I, find, if I found out the president was out to kill me, I might lament my own life. Jesus doesn't lament his own life. He laments Israel. They have continually rejected the prophets whom God had raised up over and over to go preach truth and warn and prophesy that their hearts might be turned back to the Lord. And they've continually rejected these prophets and rejected these prophets, even putting some of them to death. And Jesus will follow in this long line of prophets. Just like their fathers before them, they will put this prophet to death. But we know, we know that Jesus is more than a prophet. But he does call himself a prophet. But he is, he is more than a prophet. Look at the way he, he describes himself in verse 34. How often would I have gathered you, Jesus says. That's a, that's a clear statement, identifying himself with the God of Israel. How often would I have gathered you? Remember when... We were in Ruth a few months ago. We took a little break in the middle of the Gospel of Luke to, to hit uh, some Old Testament books and to, to be encouraged. Boaz was praising Ruth for her great faith. And he says, what, what does he say about Ruth? You found refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And so Jesus is saying, how often I would have gathered you here. How often I would have protected you. Jesus is more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. The eternal Son of God has come to His people, and His own people received Him not. They refuse His protection. They refuse His offer of 
grace. Notice, though, the compassion of Christ. Notice the compassion of Jesus here. He earnestly desires their good. You can hear the love of Christ for his people. You can hear his grief that they have rejected him and they've been unwilling to receive him. There's compassion, there's love, there's grief. We see the same idea, the same heart on display in Paul and in Romans. When he says, oh, what would I give if my brethren according to the flesh could be saved? I would be accursed, Paul says. I would go to hell if they could be saved. You know, I think we should pray and ask God to soften our hearts towards those who are outside of Christ. To break our hearts with grief and compassion for those who need to respond to the gospel, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's neighbors, or whether it's nations that don't have any gospel witness there, may the Lord soften our hearts. Will the Holy Spirit create a, a compassion and a concern in our hearts for those who are far from Christ, who aren't striving to enter through the narrow door? Ultimately, Israel's unwillingness leads to their rejection. Look at verse 35. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what Jesus has been warning about. This is what he's been been telling Israel is, is a possibility. You know, if you, again, if you haven't, been with us through chapters 12, 12 and 13. There's all these different images. The door, is, the door will be closed at some point. The fig tree will be removed at some point. The, the opportunity is going away. So this rejection, oh, you know, Jesus came into his own, his own received him not. This rejection is, is probably most clearly seen when, when Jesus stands before the crowd and Pilate's there. He says, what shall I do with him? Crucify him. Crucify him. They said, we have no other king but Caesar. The house is forsaken. Within a few decades of Jesus' death, the temple would be completely destroyed. The house of Israel forsaken. And even as this passage tells us, the gospel goes forth to the north and the south, to the east and to the west. And all those who respond to Christ will sit at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But that text ends with, with, with a ray of hope. That word until breaks through with, with a little bit of hope, a little bit of light. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul says this in Romans 11, you know, addressing whether God has been faithful to Israel. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, partial hardening has come upon Israel until what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God will deliver many in the end. He will take away the sins of the many in Israel. 
And they will look and they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus will gather them and the protection and the safety of his wings. Because nothing can stop the Lord from fulfilling his mission. Not wicked rulers, not unbelieving Israel. All of these things are are actually used by God. This rejection of Christ by his own people was not a surprise to Christ. He, He used it then to take the gospel to the nations to bring salvation to the world. So as we wrap up this morning, we should, we should ask this. So in light of what we're hearing, that Jesus did not stop in fulfilling his task, and he has fulfilled his task, he laid down his life for our sins. And on the other hand, we're called to strive. So do I strive or do I rest? Right? Nothing can stop Jesus. He has finished the task before him. That sounds like news we can rest in. But we must also strive. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But faith alone is is never quite alone. It's followed up by by perseverance, by persevering in the faith, by continuing to love and pursue Christ. That's the evidence that we have that the Spirit indwells us and is working in us. And so we strive. We, We fight. We don't just... Get lazy. We, we strive after Christ because, because the world is wooing us to give up. We strive because Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We strive after Christ because the flesh is deceitful. And it weighs us down in our race to the finish line. And you know, in the end, we'll, we'll look back and we'll say, not only was my justification by grace, but we'll look back and say, man, my, the perseverance of my faith and the Christ-likeness that was produced in me, it was all from God. It was all from Him. He not only justified me, but He sanctified me. I'm reminded, and we'll close with this, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would see the gospel clearly, that we are indeed justified, not on the basis of works, but we are called to follow Christ, and that you work in us, not only positional sanctification, where we, are made, where we are sanctified the moment we are justified. But you begin to work in us of making us like Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work. Thank you for even the hard texts, even the difficult commands. Thank you for revealing who you are to us in your word, in Christ, in creation. May we be faithful in Jesus' name. Amen.